Thank you. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 2? And it's a joy to see you this morning as we continue to study this book. I want to reiterate, repeat, continue to remind each and every one of us that when we're studying this book of Romans, we are dealing with two major subjects, well, really three, but um, you're dealing with anthropology, and that is the study of man, and the book of Romans teaches us exactly who mankind is. And also, the second major subject is, well, really what the Bible is too, is theology. And it's important. The word important is even an understatement on how vital it is that we understand who we are in light of who God is. No one is um, separate no, here that has not gone through trials, has not gone through pain, has not gone through trials and pain that others have caused on us, but also and predominantly has not gone through trials and pain that we have caused through our own sin, through our own consequences. Uh, or through our own consequences of the sin that we've committed. We've all gone through this. And for those who are going through the consequences of sin, who are going through the pain caused by bad choices, and still have a desire to obey Christ because there is a a love for Christ, however small or large or anywhere in between, exists inside of our hearts and minds because we've had encounters with Christ, there is still that, why do I keep messing up? It's, It's this constant question. I have people coming to me all the time. It's like, I don't want to sin. I don't want to keep doing this. I'll go three months without. I'll go five months. I even went a year without going to that place or doing that thing or seeing that person that I know is bad for me or making another bad choice with another person who had the same characteristics of every other person. All of these questions, we've sat down in this church with hundreds, even thousands of people asking those questions, why? And the key, the fundamental fact lies in what Paul is attempting to do here. And that is, he is trying to get all of the attention of self-preservation, of righteousness of man, of focusing on us to try to accomplish favor with God. Focusing on us to try to accomplish salvation through works. And he is in the most legal, brilliant, genius way doing that in these chapters that we've already studied. And with that inadequacy that we have, we look to Christ. And along with the study 
of that inadequacy, as Paul points out, to three, three major groups in these first two chapters, and we're going to go into chapter three this morning, and that is the complete pagan, Romans chapter one. The moralist, Romans chapter two, really the first eight to ten verses, and then the religious person, specifically the Jew, and the rest of the second chapter. And he's going to go on talking to the Jews um, in chapter three. And those three categories of people, he has dismantled, he has brought down, destroyed any thought that, that any one of those groups can have righteousness apart from Christ. And you see what it does. It takes the burden, which is a good thing, but it also takes the glory and it takes the honor and it takes all of those things away from humanity because it covers all groups of humanity and it places it on the righteousness of Christ, the goodness of Christ, the greatness of his sacrifice. And something emerges here that answers that question of how do I stop sinning? How do I get over the pornography or the lust or the emotional relationships uh, that women will have with different men and women that is bad for them? How do I get over all of that? How do I... do, do I have success and victory in all of these things? Because, ladies and gentlemen, the truth is that there is victory in these things. There's absolute victory. You can stop looking, looking at pornography. You can stop any form of sexual morality, whether it be personal forms of pornography, masturbation, or going on into uh, with other people. You can stop idolatry. It is possible to have a proper view of marriage and not be completely influenced by this culture that views money over marriage, career over people. It is possible to overcome. It is possible to have victory. It is possible to walk in such intimacy with Christ that the rest of the world's noise begins to become so quiet and the voice of God directs every decision and every part of your life. It is possible. I've personally experienced this at times in my life and then I know that when I stop this fundamental thing that is emerging here, then the, the noise of the world gets louder. And that fundamental thing is, we must decrease that he must increase. Every idea of personal righteousness, every idea of moral goodness, every idea of any abilities you have to accomplish anything without Christ needs to decrease. It needs to be reconciled with the truth that we cannot do it. That's what's emerging from these chapters. And so the question is, well, how do I have, uh, how do I have victory in all this? 
You must see who you are in light of who Christ is. And when you do that, your love for him grows. And when your love for him grows, then and only then will you have victory over your sin because you will love him more than the pleasures of sin. That's what's emerging from here, by the way. It's what's going on. We left off in verse 25 where the word of God in chapter 2 of Romans says, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if any uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even when you're with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that is one outwardly in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. Carrying on the same things that he was really getting eloquently through in in verses uh, really six here, five actually, all the way down to verse 24. He's saying, yes, okay, if there in verse five, if if you seek after righteousness and goodness, uh, uh, you will have immortality and eternal life and glory and honor. And, and the heathen will have, uh, those who practice sin will have destruction and anguish and pain as uh, the idea is separated from God in hell. And he gets the Jews or the religious person's attention again. And guys, apply this to any aspect as you meditate on this scripture of what's going on in our culture, in our world today, over having tradition over truth, money over marriage, um, people over Christ, whether it be family, whether it be friends, whether it be government, whether it be colleagues. Everybody else must take a back seat to our relationship with Jesus Christ. He will guide us. He will lead us. And these, these Jews are like, yeah, okay, those who seek goodness, great, that's us. We will have immortality. But the, the point as he goes down is all are breakers of the law. The law points us towards Christ because it reveals to us our sin. When God gave the law to Moses, it wasn't so that these people can attempt to accomplish perfect righteousness. It was an absurd uh, uh, religion created. And what's interesting is this religion that started, which is Judaism, this religion of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it was the proper religion. It wasn't pagan Babylonianism and all of their uh, uh, worship of false gods. 
It wasn't the Amalekites worshiping Moloch and throwing their babies in the fire. They actually received a revelation from God about who, what is his righteous requirements. And instead of saying, we can't do this, and, and saying, who will help us? Oh God, who will help us, Yahweh? Uh, Moses, who's going to help us? We can't accomplish this. Instead of doing that, for 1,800 years, until this New Testament is written, until Jesus Christ is born, they've attempted to fulfill the law. And not just for 1,800 years. It's gone on that way all, all the way to our time today. And, and all these rules that make no sense. Should we have rules of modesty in the church when it comes to clothing? Absolutely. Women, cover yourselves up. We don't want to... Well, there are some men who do. It just... Cover yourself up. But all these traditional rules over women can't wear trousers and we can't have tattoos and we can't have different piercings and we have to wait till we're 36 to get married and all of these traditions that spring up from man just like these guys. And you sit back and you're like, man, this is, you know, God's plan is better than Satan's plan for humanity. It really is. And Paul says here, once again, he's going on that. You've broken the law. It, what was circumcision in the first place? It was a symbol of the flesh being cut off from the body. It was a symbol of the, the spirit of God, the rule of God, the, the, the greatness of God actually taking first place in our lives. But where we become spiritual beings through salvation, it, it, it has... The, the physical act of circumcision has zero percent to do with us being righteous before God. That's his whole point there. It's his whole point. And we do this. We, don't you? Guys, we will feel righteous when we start practicing things. And it's the wrong feeling that we're supposed to have. All things that we do for God is for, should spring up from gratitude and love. Not trying to earn favor, not trying to get more money, not trying to get blessings. If the blessings come, great, and they do, but we do it because we love. And this boils down to when you, you need to search your own heart and you need to say, am I doing the church thing because I want to feel religious and righteous. I go to church, I serve, I give. I, 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 I pray, I read, and you have this list and, and, and it becomes something else entirely than relationship. It becomes this religious, ceremonial, traditional practice that makes us feel good about ourselves. It's not good. I mean, we are to do those things because we love him. Isn't it offensive? You know, it's offensive to be friends. It's offensive to do stuff for somebody so that you can feel good about yourself or get something from that person. 
And yet so many of us will enter into marriage because we want to be fulfilled in something that we're not fulfilled in. If there's an emptiness and we want to fill it with other things, we want to fill it with people, we want to fill it with things, we want to fill it with career, we want to fill it with money. And and so many of us discover, even if we get those things and we fill it, that we're completely unsatisfied. It's like, great, I found another guy that's a jerk. Is every guy a jerk? Yes, we are. We try not to be, but we are. And then it's like a guy's like, golly, I thought this woman was different. She's as emotional as the last one. I, I, I thought finally there was one woman who wasn't crazy. Listen, you're all crazy. That's okay. It's just, you're, you know that sometimes when guys get together, it's like, hey, is, it's like, hey, uh, is your wife overly emotional at times? It's, is that yours? I mess with guys. I've had guys ask me that. I was like, no, my wife's never showed any emotion. Driving a car or something. We're, we, we're, we're just messed up people. But we enter these relationships thinking that messed up person that's as messed up as we are is going to fulfill us. No one can fulfill you except Christ. Nobody. And we enter these relationships the same way we enter our relationship with Christ. And that's why we fail so much. That's why we don't have victory, because we're looking for Christ to give us something that is not going to satisfy us. And what Christ wants to give us is himself, which will satisfy us completely. I remember when I, you know, got married and you just, you realize how incredibly selfish you are. Kelsey likes when I rub my fingers across her back. You know, we'll be watching TV and I'll rub my fingers across her back. And then I'll be like, it's this take and, and, and give relationship. Take and give, take and give. That is so much of our mindset. And this is what Paul is addressing in, in, in a way. And I'll be like, okay, I tickled your back. And, you know, I like because I, I have this restless leg syndrome. I've had it since I was a little boy. My legs will just start hurting all the time aching and so she'll rub my legs and I'm not being dirty it's my clothes are on we're watching tv and I'll I'll be like hey uh, you you rub my legs for seven minutes and I rubbed your back for 15 it's uh it's not fair (laughs) you know you're a selfish woman you know it's just That's how we think. I gave this much, you give this much. And we enter this relationship with Christ that way. I've given, I go to church, I, I, I give a, a, a tithe, I, I, I worship, I love, but, but you've given me no person, no wife. You've given me no promotion. Why do you think I've been so against the prosperity gospel for so long, because, not only because it's a lie, it destroys people. It destroys the image of Christ in people's eyes. It's like I've been doing this like the pastor said, and I have not seen a hundredfold blessing. I've not seen a promotion at work. And all of a sudden the relationship with Christ becomes completely estranged. They kind of go through the motions. It's like, you know what? They're, they're not giving what 
He's not giving me what was promised. Let me tell you, riches was never promised to you. And as we'll sing in the second service, the song we didn't sing in the first, he doesn't owe us anything. He already gave everything. We owe him everything. That's, That's the idea here. It's like, so you thought circumcision, the very act of cutting off foreskin, was somehow made you right with God? Don't you know what it symbolized? That if somebody was to obey the law, then even if they weren't circumcised, it's like circumcision to them because they've cut off the flesh in their life and they've obeyed the law. Even those who aren't Jews, the idea is what he's saying. Even those who don't believe in circumcision, that's the Gentile world, if they obey the law, they can preach circumcision to you. Very interesting wording here. And and he was saying that early on in the chapter. He's saying, even the Gentiles can judge you if they obey the law. And even those who aren't circumcised, if they obey the law, can judge you. And this is... This is like a roller coaster of emotions for the Jew because at first in chapter one, he's making them very happy. And then chapter two, verse one, he makes them very mad. Then he starts saying, if you pursue good, you will have eternal life. They're like, okay, he makes them happy. Then he says, none none of you can obey the law, makes them unhappy. And then he makes them really mad. Even the Gentiles who are not circumcised, if they obey the law, it's like circumcision to them and they can judge you. Makes him mad again. And then what Paul is going to do in these eight verses and chapter three is anticipate the questions that they're going to raise, which they are brilliant questions. Because the book of Romans is not complete until we get all the way to the end. Chapter 16. And he's going to begin answering questions he knows the Jews are going to ask. And he says in verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? This is, a, this is an interesting question now. He's like, okay, what advantage has the Jew? Do they have a historical advantage? Have you guys ever studied the Jews' history? Way back in the day, the, the Babylonians lead them into captivity for 70 years. During that initial siege and take over the Babylonians, hundreds of thousands of Jews die. They're there for 70 years in captivity. You, you, you go down to, and I, I don't have the time, I had planned on talking a lot more, but skip down all through the terrible history of the Jews and the attack of, of the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Philistines and, the, and all these people who hate the Jews because there's God's people. And then you get to 70 AD where Titus, this great Roman general, comes in and he kills And one siege, a million Jews, and burns the city to the ground. They were doing this sport, these these people who attacked Jerusalem, and they were having these games over throwing and being able to land certain Jews on different 
uh, uh, parts of uh, the, uh, the, the ground, they began to pile up and they were throwing them over. 100,000 people got thrown over the wall in Jerusalem during a sporting game that the Romans were having. All of them died. You skip down to the, they've been, they were kicked out of the, uh, France. They were kicked out of Spain in the 14, 15, 1600s. They, they, they went over into, when they were kicked out of Spain and France, they had to go over to Poland and Russia and Germany. And then in the 1940s, after hundreds of years of being in those places, there was a crazy guy who got it in his mind by Satan to kill every Jew on the planet. And six million Jews were slaughtered, mainly from those regions, Germany, Poland, and Russia. The Jew has no historical advantage at all. Well, do they, what advantage do they have? Do they have a spiritual advantage? No, because the apostle Paul just told them in two chapters something very offensive. They have no spiritual advantage over anybody else. They are sinners just like everyone else and they need a savior. Well, it tells us exactly what advantage they have. Let me read the first eight verses. What advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. The word oracles is the words of God. It's the, it's the word of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What, it, it can seem confusing. Paul is anticipating three objections that the Jews will immediately come with and he asks the question and then he answers the question, not just in these eight verses, but he will begin to answer those questions throughout the rest of the book of Romans repeatedly. Three major objections that he has experience with the Jews accusing him of. And in the book of Romans, in the most descriptive way, in a way that no other book in all of the Bible answers these objections, he will answer them in the book of Romans. He's experienced with this in Acts 21, verse um, 28. The men are crying out. And they say, men of Israel, help. This man, who is Paul, teaches that all men everywhere against the people, that is God's people, against the law, that's God's law, and against this place, that is the temple. And those are the three 
questions that he's going to raise because he has experience uh, of being accused of these things and he's going to answer them. Those objections are, they're like, we're children of Abraham, you're attacking that. We've received the law, you're attacking the law. And we are the Jews and you're attacking God's people or the place of worship. The three objections, you're attacking God's people, you're attacking God's promise, you're attacking God's purity. You're attacking his people, his promise, and his purity. Same thing in Acts, what I just read. The people, the law, the holy place where righteousness happened, where people were purged. So the first thing is you are attacking God's people. They believe their national identity marked them for salvation and favor. As I read last week, when John the Baptist was preaching in the Jordan, who was a Jew? His father was a priest. And John the Baptist understood that. And when the religious leaders came out, he saw them, he called them a brood of vipers because they destroyed their family, they destroy everything around them. Who has warned you to flee from the wrath of come, to come? Repent and show works worthy of repentance and do not say that Abraham is our father for God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Do not say our identity is in our ancestry. Our identity is our race. They believe their national identity marked them for salvation. And Paul knows well, then what advantage is there? I mean, you're attacking us. You say circumcision has no advantage. You say a race has no advantage, even though God chose Abraham and birthed the people to be special and unique. You say all of these things, then what advantage has the Jew? Well, he tells them. It's that you were given the word of God. They had the privilege as God chose and raised up and birthed the people to proclaim the one true God, but they wasted it. God's authentic self-revelation was entrusted to them and they were untrustworthy. William Kepler said this, they and they only, talking about the Jews, Amongst mankind received the transcript of eternal mind, were trusted with his own engraven laws, and they were constituted guardians of his cause. Theirs were the prophets and the priestly call, and theirs by birth the, self, the saviors of us all, in that Christ was born, the savior of us all. And yet, they were completely unfaithful to communicate God's word to the rest of the world. They hid it from themselves. They didn't want the blessings to go out to the rest of the world. And even the word that they did have amongst themselves, they misinterpreted it almost entirely. I mean, think about what the Bible is saying. I gave you my word and 
and, and what took place in giving you my word, man, I got a lot more to preach and I don't have time, but we'll, we'll make it work. What, what took place is I actually raised up an entire race of people that have never ceased to exist since the moment I called Abraham, which in and of itself is a miracle. Do you see any Amalekites running around? Any Philistines? They don't exist. So many people groups have ceased to exist and they have not because God has raised up the people for, and look, the Bible's telling us the exact reason. It's not some weird, crazy thing. He has raised them up so that he can give them the word of God and so that they can proclaim that word of God to the rest of the world. Instead, they kept it for themselves and then misinterpreted it amongst themselves. You, you think about everything we do here at Calvary Chapel. Everything is centered around the Bible. And it is so controversial. It comes into a culture, whether it be Kenya or our cult, my culture in America or whatever culture. It comes into it and people only want to receive what they like. When it confronts confronts the satanic attack on marriage, people are like, okay, I get it. I ain't gonna go that, I'm not going down that road. We must get money before our children get married. It's like, well, then you're not following the word of God. You're no better than the Jew. You've, you've interpreted the word of God exactly how you want to suit your own culture, your own traditions, and your own desires. Same as the Jew. And, and guys, think about, and I know I talk about this a lot, but we talked about it a lot yesterday in devotions. Think about it. The, think about how Satan has attacked our universities. They are dens of snakes, these universities. Dens of snakes. The professors are leading not just one, two, three people, an entire generation of Kenyans down to hell. And yet, it is the greatest desire of the Kenyan parent to get their kids to university, purely for money's sake. And he's, he's laughing about it, guys. Satan is approaching the throne of God saying, don't you see that I rule Kenya? But is there any amongst us that God can say, have you considered my servant so-and-so? I've been preaching against the satanic attack on marriage uh, through the glorification of atheistic universities since the day I got in this country. To little avail do people actually, uh, a lot of people in our church listen to me, but I think they more tolerate me and they go back and do exactly what everybody tells them to do. When are we going to wake up and stop putting tradition over truth? People over Christ, money over marriage. We must act if we're not to be like the Jews on behalf of the truth and do exactly what God entrusted the Jews to do. Now he's given the responsibility of the Gentiles. Do you remember when he says, I invited my people to a supper. And when I came into the dining hall, nobody was there. 
And they said, where are they? When I asked my servant who was to invite them, and they said, well, some said they're busy. They're out in business or they're, they're, they're doing this, given into marriage. Not Kenyans, but other people given into marriage. And I got one laugh out of that. Thanks, Nellis. And I can tell when it's a courtesy laugh. That wasn't. Yes. And, and, and no one's there. So what did Jesus say? He said, okay, go to the highways. Go to the byways. Go to the non-people of God. Go to the Gentiles. Invite them. So who comes? The worst kind of people, according to the world. And he fills up the dining hall. And this is, you know, they're having a great time. He's entrusted us with the oracles of God. Us. What are we doing with it? Are we wasting it with our tradition? With our idolatry? With our religious ceremonial practices? Or are we preaching it and actually obeying it? What are we doing with the oracles of God? Think about how powerful this word is. Have you ever considered how powerful the word of God really is? Do you know in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when it's talking about marriage, it actually says if somebody is married to an unbeliever, if there is a woman married to an unbelieving husband and that husband is willing to stay with her, then she should stay with him knowing that that man is sanctified by that woman and the only reason he's sanctified by that woman is because she's part of the body of Christ and she has the word of God. And vice versa. If a husband is saved and the woman is not she's, and she's willing to stay with him, he should stay and she, she is sanctified by her husband and all of their children are sanctified by that husband or by that person who's born again. Have you ever considered the very truth that that scripture is trying to tell us? It's not talking about salvation sanctification. It's talking about the power of God's word in an individual's life. It is so powerful that it has a sanctifying effect on the person who's not saved. What advantage has the Jew? Well, they were given the word of God and they wasted it. They wasted it. Listen, folks. Every one of us in this room have the word of God. What are you doing with it? Are you going off on stupid ideologies, ridiculous beliefs, worldly, manly wisdom? Is that what your mind is filled with? And you hear the word of God every Sunday and it just doesn't get inside of there? And it doesn't get inside of here? Or are you actually being changed by the word of God and then proclaiming that word because you've been entrusted the oracles of God? Do you know being a member at Calvary Chapel Eldoret causes inadvertently and even directly a great responsibility because of how much Bible you get? You are more responsible as a 25-year-old who's been here a few years than most of all of your relatives to preach the word because you've received more word than most of your family members ever have. 
and you will have a stricter judgment because of it. And, and don't let this cause you to be like, well, I'm leaving Calvary. I don't want to have a strict judgment. Let me go down to winners. Maybe I'll be in a, in a very non-hot part of hell, you know. No, no, you, you being here is good, but understand as much Bible as you get, if you waste it, you're no better than the Jew who was given the revelation of God. So he's, he's, he's saying, what advantage has the Jew? Well, I'll tell you what advantage. You got the revelation of God. He trusted the Jewish people with it and you've wasted it. So now he's given it to the Gentiles. And then they're like, oh, so the Gentiles now can proclaim God's word. Ah, we got you on another one, Paul. Not only have you attacked God's people, but you've attacked God's promises. Okay, let's, let's go down this road, Paul, and actually agree with you. We have been unfaithful. What you're saying about the law makes a little bit of sense. So because we're unfaithful, God is unfaithful? That's what Paul's going to address. He says there in verse 3, for what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? And Paul says, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? So that's going to be the third question. What's he, what he's doing there is, he's saying, no, that's not what I'm saying. You're right. God's promises still stand for the nation of Israel. That's what he's saying. Now, they are messed up and he's going to correct it down the road. But here in this passage, he's saying God's promises for Israel still, still stand. But what these guys, they're convoluted in their thinking. They're not thinking clearly. It would, like, it would be like Judas saying, okay, you promised me good. You promised me good for being with you. Uh, you said the good works for those like me. And, and though I betrayed you, still do good for me. No. God works for the good for those who love him and are called according to his promises. But Paul's going to move on and he'll answer the question later. But he's saying, no, God's promises for Israel are the same. And so in the future, in the book of Zechariah, it teaches very clearly that there will be a time where God will gather up all the nation of Israel into himself. All the nation of Israel that is currently living there will be a mass revival in the future of the nation of Israel where every Jewish person on the planet will be born again in a mass revival. So God's promises are the same. Covenant theology is true. God is not done with Israel and he will continue with them. Number three, you've attacked God's purity. He says, but if... 
If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who afflicts wrath? And I speak as a man, certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For the truth of God is increased through my lie to his glory. Why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. So what Paul is doing is he said, okay, we're liars, and if I lie, and, and, and if God is good, then let's continue to do evil. And he's going to address this very descriptively in Romans chapter 6. Let us continue to do evil. If we're just evil in the first place, and... The law teaches us how wicked we are and how evil we are. And then God is so loving that, that this Messiah, whom you say is Jesus, that one who was born Nazareth, is, dies for our sins. Why not continue to do evil? So that we can continue to see the goodness of God. Continue to lie. Continue to be unrighteous. Continue to participate in evil. Well... And then we can see how God... Is that what you're saying, Paul? Are you attacking the purity of God? If our works mean nothing to God, then why even do them? And Paul is going to address... He addresses it and he's going to answer it. Really, these three questions are continually answered all throughout the book of, book of Romans in, in, in a great way. So I'm not going to answer them completely as we, are, we have run out of time. But we are going to get the answer, why do we continue to do good if our evil shows how good God is? Why not continue to do evil so that we can continue to grow in our understanding of how good God is? And Paul is going to answer that later on in Scripture. But as we close, and the worship team, come on up. As we close this service, listen, guys. What advantage has the Jew? Let me ask you this. What advantage does the Christian have over the non-Christian, over those people who aren't saved? Are we better than them? No. Are we more righteous than them? No. Are we more favored by God than them in the sense of salvation? No. What advantage do we have? It's the same answer that they had, that Paul has for the Jew. We, our advantage comes with a responsibility. And that responsibility is, we've been given the word of God. And when we don't give the word of God without bias and preference and personal ambition and desires, when we don't give the word of God, we're as guilty as the Jewish person. You've been given the word of God. No matter who it is, you go share that word of God. No matter what the consequence, you go share that word of God. No matter what the location, you go share that word of God. No matter what the person, I don't care if it's your father, your mother, your brothers, your sisters, your boss, you go share that word of God. That's the responsibility you've been given. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that we have in having your word. And as we continue in the book of Romans, Lord, we're so grateful.
that we can learn all of these things, incredible things. We ask for your blessing as we, because of love, give this offering. Receive it as an act of love and worship to you. Give us wisdom in the administration of these gifts that we may expand your kingdom on earth. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.